Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting uh, from the center of the office here in Central Europe. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. Things are going well here in Vienna, Austria. We've got some nice weather that's uh, finally peaked out. Uh, we got a lot of things that are happening in the news. Uh, but I am very, very excited uh, for this program. I'm joined by my colleague here, uh, here at the Consumer Choice Center. We're speaking with Anna Arunashvili. Anna, how goes it? Hi, Yale. I'm so happy to be here today. Um, it goes well, I guess. Um, I Unfortunately, I cannot say the same about Georgian weather. It's been raining for a whole week, and it's expected to be like that throughout the next week, too, so... I'm so you are you're coming to us um, from uh, from Tbilisi, Georgia. Is that correct? Yes, exactly, Tbilisi, Georgia. So are you right in Tbilisi? Or are you in a suburb and you just say Tbilisi, or or how does that work? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. I'm I live in Tbilisi, one of the central parts of the city, but I'm not originally from there, so I'm not gonna lie that I'm native Tbilisi. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. Okay, good, good. And uh, you know, for a lot of listeners of this program, uh, by the way, you guys can. Go and listen to the past shows and archives over there on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, uh, the podcast version on Podcasting 2.0. Um, I know I talk a lot about that. Anna, does the Podcasting 2.0 thing sound exciting or does it sound a bit too complicated to you? Mm, it's exciting. I'm still not sure quite sure what is that, but it sounds very exciting. So we're going to get you a modern podcast app, something like Fountain or Breeze. You can download this program uh, it will come with a little Bitcoin wallet within that app, and people can send their Satoshis. They can send a boostagram, so you can actually send a message to people during the program uh, while you're listening, or set it to a, a particular setting, so you can send uh, you know, 10 Satoshis, one Satoshi. Uh, these are just fragments of Bitcoin off whenever you're listening. Uh, trying to, uh, as they say, orange pill as many people as possible, but I know there are people listening on the radio who probably do not care about that, but regardless. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit about Georgia. We've had um, you know a few people on the program in the past that have uh, spoken to us about things that have been happening, uh, particularly in the political circles. Uh, we know a lot about sort of the early reforms that had happened, you know, throughout the two thousands, and how things are looking now. Uh, well, things are not looking as good as. Um, I would hope they would. Unfortunately, I think our economy has not been going anywhere in so long. We're like just stocked, frozen uh, in one place for a couple of years now. And there's not much trust in our government. So young people want to change, but also there's we don't really have good political alternatives for that. But um, I guess like at some point things are going to change. We try our best. So whenever we don't like something, we go in the streets, we demonstrate, we protest. But just uh, it feels like we're not really heard by our government, but maybe something is going to happen that will, will make more and more people go out in the streets and like, actually try to do something to change. And what have been the main uh, sort of points of contention uh, between the government? Obviously, we have the situation in Ukraine. Uh, there are a lot of... Um, Unfortunately, the media calls them pro-Western people in Georgia. I, I hate that term, uh, but there, I would just say a lot of pro-freedom people uh, who are in Georgia. What specifically have been the problematic aspects of the recent governments and what they have enacted? 
Yeah, um, I would say the most recent problem we had with our government is about war in Ukraine. Our country was one of those countries who did not join sanctions about, against Russia, claiming it's because it's going to harm our economy a lot more than they, they would not do not anything to Russian economy. But I think it's just a matter of principle because we shared the same fate so that Ukraine is going through now. We had war with Russia in 2008. It was not remotely as bad as it is in Ukraine. It only lasted five days. We achieved like peace agreement quite um, soon after the war started. But, you know, like it ruined lives. It ruined people. Um, uh, that we got a lot more refugees after 2008. A lot of more people had to leave their places you know, where they have lived the whole life and like just go and live in like tiny houses that government built in the middle of nowhere. So like these things you cannot really forget. And now we had to a chance to demonstrate to Russia like you know we're we are really against you. We don't like you. But instead of doing that, uh, our government is just being so quiet about this whole thing. Even when uh, writing. Uh, supportive post again for Ukraine, they never mentioned, mentioned Russia, that it's Russia that's committing the crimes. They're just like, oh, atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine, on the Ukrainian territory. Never meant, no, no mention of Russia at all. Yeah, it's, so like, that's it's, like, as if, uh, it's as if the Ukrainians, you know, they're, oh, they're just fighting, you know, in their own Yeah, yard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. And from what I've noticed, supporters of this government, they're also everyone is pro-Ukraine but just um, they never they say that it's the fault of Zelensky that uh, the war started just like they were saying that it was the fault of our ex-president um, Saakashvili that the war, the war started and it could have been avoided but I'm not sure it could have been avoided so that's why we went in the streets and we showed our support to Ukrainian people and we've been sending a lot of like humanitarian aid to the country Government didn't do much, but I think people itself are very involved and very invested in this. Yeah, people, civil society actually rising up and exactly. doing something. Yeah, that's great to see. Uh, and I know that, you know, there's uh, a lot of people that are discovering Georgia after after many years. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen just a number of people that I know personally, and uh, also I'm seeing it a lot more on these travel websites. You know, people are discovering Georgia as a country. Uh, discovering the wine region, discovering Tbilisi, discovering the old churches, um, the beautiful songs. Um, this segment is sponsored by... No. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, what What has it been like for you the last couple of years? Because you've been traveling around the world. I've been going to different countries. Uh, what, have, what have people sort of said to you when you say that you're from Georgia? Do they have a... Apart from the typical, um, you know, oh, that state in America, have you had any interesting interactions? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, like you said, a lot more people are discovering the country, and we get a lot of travelers, we get a lot of digital nomads um, who are coming here. We also have people just moving here because we have really good tax system. I guess they do not um, have to pay like as high taxes as they do in their own home country. So, my experience um, in Europe, I would say more or less everyone knows where Georgia is. Maybe not what language we speak, but at least they know there's a country called Georgia. But I was recently in uh, Latin America. I was in Colombia and Ecuador for a couple of months. And there, I must say, no one has any idea where Georgia is. And everyone is like, oh, Georgia, the state. So 
you get tired after like 10, 20 times of explaining what is, and you just, sometimes I would just go on, yes, I'm from the States, even though my accent is not <laughs> American Oh no, it so- all, sounds but... <laughs> like a Southern accent to me. That's exactly what it is, um, Georgia. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so Latin America, okay, so you traveled around there a little bit. I know that you've written for our, uh, our website over there at consumerchoicecenter.org. You've written a couple articles about some awesome services or not-so-awesome services and uh, some of the laws surrounding that. Uh, you've written a little bit about the sharing economy, and I know that you've been helpful in putting together these indices that we do whereby we mm-hmm. rank countries based upon how friendly they are uh, to many of these different services. Uh, so what was that experience like from, from what you saw uh, being out there in the streets? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 2021, I co-authored this index. We had LATAM, Sharing Economy Index. And it was really cool that I actually got to visit Colombia because Bogota was uh, shared the first place, first spot with Rio. So I was, I actually saw what we wrote about right there. And unfortunately, there were no more sharing like e-scooter services. You can own them privately, but they're not um, available in the streets for renting anymore. And one more problem is apparently Uber is still illegal. And that's one of the topics I wrote the blog post about. It's on our website. Um, and one more thing is we're going to have very soon on our Instagram um, a reel coming, like a really nice short video about sharing economy services in Bogota. So I hope our listeners are, are going to check it out as well. So the blog post I mentioned, it's about Uber in Colombia and the trouble that uh, this company has gone through um, operating in the country for the last last six years. Basically, it remains illegal. And I was really surprised when I went there. I did not like we didn't find that information that time when we were working on the index. But when I went there, they asked me to take the front seat. And I was really surprised. Apparently, if the police catches you. Um, that like they realize it's an Uber, then the driver is going to get fined. If um, he refuses to pay fine, they're going to take away his car. And um, I didn't exactly catch what amount of money we were talking about because all the drivers say different amount. And some of them said that it's Uber's responsibility or some of them say that it's a driver's responsibility. So I would suppose it does not happen that often that the drivers are getting fined for that or stopped by police. But it's just like you still live in the fear that it's going to happen at some point. And this is not just, you know, a problem in, in uh, Latin America. I remember the, much the same in, in Quebec, you know, in Montreal and Quebec City, mm. uh, having to get in the front seat and pretend that you're, you know, it's your buddy who's driving yeah. you in the car. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you get out and everybody's got their phone and everything. Uh, it's kind of unfortunate that that's, that's worked out. But, you know, there are countries that are providing better models and allowing people to have access to, as you mentioned, the electric scooters, uh, you know, be able to, mm-hmm. to take any kind of car sharing services. And it's not just Uber. There's all the different companies. I think the, the bigger one that we have, in, at least in Austria, is Bolt. Uh, but I think, yeah. you know, whereas it's, you know, perhaps illegal in some places in Austria, it's just so heavily regulated that only uh, it's only companies that really do it. You don't really have an individual person uh, that you would have, like, in the United States where anybody can just take their Toyota Camry you know, pop up the app okay. and go pick up some folks. Uh, so that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, like due to new regulations, new taxes, this sharing economy services are becoming a bit more unaffordable and available. For example, just Airbnb prices, prices like keep rising and rising. 
and um, I was like checking prices of Airbnb in the US and I, I was just so surprised of how much taxes it adds to the final amount. Um, it just doubles the prices and I think it's the same in Mexico. It's not included in the price that they show you, but then it all adds up. Like I'm going to Mexico at this point summer, so I'm going to see firsthand how it goes. All right. Well, that's good. You can tell us, tell us how yeah. it is. Give us an on the ground report. You know, we'll, uh, we'll get, get some uh, correspondence there uh, to figure out what's going on. Uh, so we only have about two minutes left before we have to go to break. And uh, as a little preview, we'll be speaking with Guy Bentley of the Reason Foundation on the menthol ban that is being proposed by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. Uh, some interesting things there. Uh, but I know one thing that uh, David, our usual co-host, um, he was gallivanting across Europe, so we'll we'll be back to, uh, with him uh, later in the show. But one thing that um, we talked about the last few weeks was understanding the dips in the stocks of all of these different streaming companies, platforms, corporations. And we saw specifically with Netflix some huge drop. If, if anyone had any mm -hmm. stocks in there, you know, you're, you're basically toast at this point. The entertainment sector, as it were, which I think for consumers is very important, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. Uh, you know, what is your assessment? How many sort of streaming services do you use? Uh, are there, uh, let's say, not-so-legal websites that you're getting a lot of content? Or is there, you know, you can just get a Netflix subscription or Disney+. Plus. Oh. That's a good question. So I have music streaming service, Spotify, which is something I use like most of the day, throughout the day. And then the only streaming service um, I, I am subscribed to is Netflix and which I'm not even using premium uh, version. So it's like 12 euros a month, which when you convert to our currency is a lot. So I would say most people only have Netflix here, no Disney Plus, no no Prime, and so on. It's just like you just choose one, um, and then we have this amazing pirate website where you can watch anything. Basically, like I recently, like I discovered, like Netflix does not have that great of options anymore. So you have to go subscribe to Disney Plus if you want to do this, if you want to watch this. And it just like, it doesn't really make sense anymore. Or you can have, of course, VPN, which is additional cost to just open what other countries catalog offers you. But uh, here, I, I would say half of the population is using this pirate, piracy website that I mentioned, and it has everything you want. Oh, wow. Well, I guess we see what happens when they yeah. don't open it up to consumers and there isn't enough competition. So uh, that'll have to do it for now. <laughs> uh, we're going to our next segment. Anna, thanks so much for sitting down and uh, talking through here for segment one on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio Broadcasting on the Big Talker Network on Saga 960 AM and right there on your podcast apps, thanks to Podcasting 2.0. We are delighted today to be speaking with Mr. Guy Bentley, the Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation. Guy, sir, how goes it? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Uh, things are great here. Uh, we've got David back after his uh, gallivanting across Europe and wanted to have you on because there's a lot of pressing things that are happening in your, uh, well, I guess your neck of the woods, technically, and <laughs> also what's happening with uh, your area. So we've had in the last, uh, I believe it was just this week, uh, we had the rule that was handed down by the 
FDA. Uh, this is the proposed rule on menthol cigarettes, on flavored cigars, and it seems as if uh, that there is not much like in the FDA for some of these products. Uh, you, however, have a different take. That's right. I mean, this has been a, a long time coming. Back in 2009, during the Obama administration, when we had the last sort of big um, tobacco regulatory agenda in D.C., um, flavored cigarettes were made illegal, but menthol was specifically exempted. And uh, the couple reasons for that were that um, of um, uh, menthol users, um, particularly African-American smokers, disproportionately use menthol. So it was seen as a discriminatory move to ban menthol cigarettes while keeping other cigarettes, non-menthol cigarettes, on the market. And both of them are equally as dangerous. One is not more dangerous than the other. So it was seen as an unfair thing to ban menthol cigarettes. And also there were significant concerns, as with any prohibition, about a huge black market arising with tens of millions of people using these products and making it suddenly illegal. But the FDA under the Biden administration is going to have a bite at the apple here and has now opened up the comment period for around 60 days um, to get views from um, business, public health groups, um, civil rights and law enforcement to see what's going to happen with this menthol prohibition. And uh, on that note, maybe you can help um, reconcile some of this for me, because I see this kind of running completely counter to the growing narrative on prohibition, the war on drugs. We're seeing more people on both the left and right come to, in my opinion, the right position or the realization that prohibition doesn't work. It creates negative externalities. It uh, incentivizes police forces uh, in ways in which have disproportionate outcomes for minorities. Why do you think there's such a gap here on, let's say, illicit drugs in moving generally, I would say, in the right direction, probably too slow, but in the right direction, but then doing a complete U-turn on, on, on menthol cigarettes? Yeah, David, you really put your finger on it because it seems we're taking, you know, two steps forward, one step back when it comes to banning and legalizing certain substances. Um, it is completely disjointed from uh, the current view of particularly the Democratic Party at the moment, which, for instance, in the area of drug reform, as you say, has been putting forward the idea that, in fact, we should be legalizing certain substances or decriminalizing certain substances to avoid the negative implications of the illicit market and actually promote strategies of harm reduction over criminalization. But in the area of tobacco, they've gone completely the other direction. And I think that's mainly because this, this has been pushed by a very small but well-funded group um, set of pressure groups, um, namely several um, anti-tobacco organizations very heavily funded by Michael Bloomberg, um, who has uh, for many years been uh, in favor of stricter regulation and indeed prohibition of a host of nicotine products. But what makes the menthol ban especially insidious is that um, African-Americans disproportionately use menthol cigarettes, but they don't smoke at higher rates than the rest of the population. That is untrue. Um, and actually, African-American youth are the least likely to smoke cigarettes of any ethnic group. So it seems completely disjointed why the FDA and the Biden administration would pick on a minority of minority for a solution of criminalization of, of making these products illegal, whilst 
Other products disproportionately used by white smokers, but equally as dangerous, remain legal. So it's completely out of step with current Democratic Party thinking. And there are several um, members of Congress who are very, particularly in the Congressional Black Caucus, who are nervous about this, who have raised concerns. And I think this will get um, much more of a hearing and will increasingly become heated as both um, members of Congress and also state legislatures learn more about this, because of course, it's going to be up to the states to enforce a lot of this through, the, uh, through their police departments and so on, because the FDA does not have the power um, and won't in fact be enforcing this. It's really an unfunded mandate of prohibition mm -hmm. being handed to the states. And yeah, I mean, just to, to build on, on that slightly, um, I mean, we look at some of the impact that these laws have had on 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 minority communities. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't love bringing this up because I don't really like to 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 use someone's tragic death as as a as an argument for my own opinion. But I mean, we look at Eric Garner, someone who was murdered for the crime of selling single cigarettes. Um, for me, this just creates another layer of very uncomfortable or awkward um, exchanges or engagements between what you've identified as is the consumer base for these products, African Americans and police. And again, I just don't see how there's a scenario where they come out um, where, where where the outcomes of this are are reconciled with our want for criminal justice reform and, and police reform and all of that. But what I've heard some folks say is that the reason they need to get rid of menthols is that menthol is like the, it's, it's the, the gateway for young people. They start smoking menthol cigarettes maybe because they taste better and then they become a cigarette smoker for their life, which is obviously not great. Um, is there any merit to that? Is there any truth to that at all? Yeah, these are great points. And um, specifically with regards to the idea of menthol being especially youth appealing, um, because it's um, alleged to be uh, less harsh than a regular cigarette that, that because FDA has to have a justification for banning this particular product. And you bring up the argument that, yes, they say this is particularly concerned with youth. That's just not true at all. Uh, according to the latest data we have, which is from the National Youth Tobacco Survey, looking at 2021, um, fortunately, youth smoking itself is close to non-existent anyway. Uh, it's about, I believe, 98.5% of middle and high school kids don't smoke at all. Um, and the number who smoke uh, regularly, so 20 to 30 days of the month, is something like 0.6% or a bit less. So we're really getting down to almost, if not really having eliminated youth smoking. But out of those kids who do smoke, out of that very small minority, more than 60% use non-menthol cigarettes. So menthol cigarettes are the least popular of the two options you have in terms of cigarettes. Um, and we also see that menthol smokers actually typically start later in life to non-menthol smokers. Menthol smokers typically start smoking in their very late teens, around 18, 19, or their early 20s. Whereas non-menthol smoker, I was a smoker myself. I started smoking when I was 13. I quit, thankfully, because I switched to vaping. But um, most non-menthol smokers start much earlier. So the idea that um, this is particularly youth appealing isn't, just isn't borne out by the data.
You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Guy Bentley, Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation. Uh, Guy, you mentioned it just briefly. Uh, obviously, we have the FDA that's in going after menthol uh, specifically with their proposed rule, but they're doing this at the same time that uh, several states and the FDA itself are going after flavors in some of these e-cigarettes and vaping uh, products as well. So what do you think of that dichotomy to where uh, essentially we're banning a particular flavor here and then we're still doing the flavors on the harm-reducing technologies? Do you see like a sort of cognitive dissonance? Is there uh, a good message that's being sent by our our public health overlords or is there just a, a huge mistake that's emanating from D.C.? Yeah, this is another major problem with the FDA's rule, because if they're successful in in several years, ban menthol combustible cigarettes, the regular cigarettes, um, a lot of the alleged success of their plan in the modeling they do is based on the premise that there will be lots of safer nicotine alternatives available for menthol smokers. So there will be plenty of menthol e-cigarettes and different um, uh, flavored um, safer nicotine alternatives for consumers to switch to. So there's less of a chance of them just switching to regular cigarettes or going to the illicit market. But as you point out, many states are trying to ban e-cigarette flavors. A few of them um, uh, have already done so. Thankfully, most of these proposals have and are being defeated, but a handful of states have already done so. And the FDA has not authorized a single e-cigarette in a menthol flavor yet. And it's been many months since we've uh, supposed to have decisions on the authorization of e-cigarettes. Several e-cigarette products have been authorized as, quote, appropriate for the protection of public health, but none of them in menthol flavors. And also, once more, it's not good enough for the FDA just to authorize e-cigarettes to come to market, to just allow them legally to be sold. The FDA needs to actively inform the public about the relative risk of these products, Around 98% of Americans um, incorrectly answer the question of whether e-cigarettes are much safer than traditional cigarettes. Now, with that huge gap in knowledge, many smokers, even if they have the option to switch to an e-cigarette, won't because they think they're just as lethal and why not stick with my old product? So the FDA has a lot of work to do. If it's going to go on this you know, crazy ride of prohibition, which I hope it won't, we're trying to make sure that it doesn't. But if it does, it needs to ensure that there are safer alternatives on the market available for consumers and that consumers are aware of the benefits of switching to those. So, Guy, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, You're the director of consumer freedom. Just a general political point. uh, How are consumer freedoms uh, kind of faring in the now, uh, I guess, two-year-old or I guess one-year-old Biden administration? Uh, versus previous administrations? Has there there been a shift? Do you see a lot more federal actions? Is there more stuff that's happening in the states? What is the overall state of consumer freedom? Mm. I would say there's little on the federal action apart from in the nicotine and tobacco field, where we definitely see bad actions going on from the Biden administration, which was to be expected. But hopefully many groups, uh, including ours, are are fighting against that. Um, On the state level, Actually, we see a lot of increases in consumer freedom, which is great. We see legalization of sports betting finally across the states happening, leading to very successful, much safer markets than sports betting. Um, Soda taxes and regulations on what we eat have been defeated almost everywhere they're brought up. The alcohol market, there's never been a better time to be a drinker in America than since prohibition 
choice is great, prices are down, or it, that was before uh, inflation started kicking in a big way. Um, but very competitive markets in the alcohol industry and marijuana legalization is going gangbusters. And hopefully we will get federal action um, in the best way to legalize or at least deschedule marijuana in the near term. So aside from the nicotine front, uh, consumer freedom is riding high and long may it rain. Um, we have about a minute left, Guy. What is next on, on your docket? What are some of the big items that you're looking at um, on the regulatory side? Mm. Well, outside of tobacco and nicotine field, I think you know one thing we have been concerned about and writing for a long time at Reason is the status of sex work in the United States and prohibitions against legal prostitution. Uh, Nevada has a model of doing this. It, it has upsides and downsides, but we see a lot of bad consequences coming from that criminalization. So it's definitely something we want to focus on and have a look at and see how this practice, which is never going to be uh, go away, uh, that we can somehow address people's concerns about it, while also making sure people aren't harmed through excessive law enforcement and people aren't exploited because of criminalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on a, another show just to talk about that, because that is a, a very hot topic, very taboo, which means it's perfect for our show. Um, one of our previous guests, Peter Jaworski, I think, has uh, very pointedly said, if if you can legally do it for free, you should be able to legally do it for money. Um, and I think that that pretty well applies to the debate over sex work. But lots more to unpack there. Thank you, Guy, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We just wrapped up a great interview with Guy Bentley, um, talking all things uh, consumer freedom and harm reduction. Um, Yael, what else do you have on the docket for us this week? I've been. Well, uh, I don't have much on the docket. I wanted to catch up with you. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get to mention it with Guy. We. Uh, we talked about it with our colleague Anna a bit, but you were uh, gallivanting across the European continent this mm -hmm. week. So welcome back, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite a trip. Um, essentially, seventy two hours across the ocean, five cities, three countries, five six flights, mm. two trains. It was uh, there you go. it was quite a battle. Cities don't count though, unless you you leave the airport. Ah. Uh, Okay, yeah, still, uh, okay, so then, yeah, the only city, four cities, Montreal wouldn't count because I didn't leave the airport. Everywhere else counts. Um, well, th that's pretty cool. I just, um, I wanted to give an overview to our listeners mm -hmm. because they hear us, you know, on the radio or on our podcast version, uh, and actually our numbers have been ticking up a lot the last couple of weeks. So thank oh, you guys good. for sharing the link uh, much more and, and the interviews and everything else. Uh, you know, obviously, we, we banter, we have this uh, program, we do interviews, uh, but during the week, when we're not chatting on our mics, uh, we are a busy at work and uh, doing some actual uh, consumer advocacy in the halls of power. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, basically, what was it like? You got to meet the EU institutions, which are a labyrinth 
Uh, did you did it become a bit more clear to you in the end what all these things are? Um, yeah, I think it did. I think it did. I mean, the first takeaway is that members of European Parliament are just far more accessible than national legislat- le- legislators or even provincial for that matter. Um, they're a lot more interested to hear like, okay, what's going on? There's a, there's, I, I gather that there's a, there's a sense of knowing what they don't know and getting more information, even if it's from someone they may end up disagreeing with is, is always positive. So the big takeaway there is that it's just more accessible. I wish our legislators were more accessible in that way where they're like, okay, like, what do you, what is your concern? What do you have to say? Um, I feel like a lot of times, I mean, I guess this would just be the nature of the EU parliament. They're not dealing with constituents in the same way that your congressman spends a X percent of their time dealing with constituents concerns, which are like hyper localized, regionalized problems. Um, so yeah, it was great. We were there talking about semiconductors um, potential chip shortages. That was a huge problem in 2021. Um, there's some possible bad policy that could make it worse. And we were just there to advise, um, on, on how to avoid that. Because I mean, these, if you bought a car in the last year and a half, you saw the impact of chip shortages. Um, if it were to get worse, that would trickle down to everything from smart TVs to cell phones. Um, and then some more serious things that that require chips like uh, infrastructure technology for like mainframes and all sorts of jazz like that. So um, yeah, great, great meetings. Um, it was very nice to be in the old world again. Um, you always, I mean, <laughs> not to pivot to another passionate topic of mine, but I always walk around these cities and I look at all the, the, like mid-rise buildings, the housing units, and I'm just like, oh, well, that's illegal in Toronto. That's also illegal in Toronto. And that's also illegal in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And I mean, these are cities that do not have skyscrapers, um, but they have old density, um, and that old density makes them, makes these cities a lot more walkable. um, And yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where if you could if you could try and replicate or just get rid of some of the rules in in North American cities to allow for some of that, um, it would be the city North American cities would be a lot more livable. Um, but yeah, yeah, great trip overall. I think for for Europe, it's yeah, I love that. I, I think for for Europe, it's just that a lot of this stuff is uh, you know North America is no, normally starting anew. You know, so they're building a brand new neighborhood. They have to build the road to get out there. You know, there's all these suburbs. Whereas in Europe, it's just kind of everything's grandfathered in. There's been density for a long time. Uh, but when you're building a brand new neighborhood, you know, on the parcels of land that were once, you know, the Indian tribe of Makalu or whatever it is, and now you build Oakville uh, or, you know, you build some town. Uh, it's kind of like that. I mean, even the town that I grew up in, uh, it was only founded, I believe, in the early 1800s. Uh, I think it was a couple of Revolutionary War veterans. Uh, they just had a parcel of land and just started building out, and you had the big dirt path for all the horses to, to cross, and then they just started building you know, large single-family houses and estates, and uh, probably slavery was involved because obviously it was the South. But yeah, Europe was uh, was was different, and Montreal as well. I'd say um, you know we did a lot of focus on uh, the housing in, in Canada and didn't really 
take the time to describe too much how Montreal is different, and there are a lot of duplexes and triplexes. Um, I know because I lived in the basements of them, and I vowed never to live in a basement again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The basement, live, that's the student student life for McGill and Concordia students. I had a friend who lived at McGill, and I remember visiting him once and being like, ooh, this is pretty, pretty uh, dungeon-like, but... Um, and that's why I know we have inflation and rising, you know, heating costs and stuff, but, you know, having lived through those winters with next to no good insulation or heating, I mean, you bet. I'm in my 30s, man. I'm cranking up the heat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the second yeah. it gets cold out, I don't really care. I'll pay the extra 100 bucks. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I saw something funny oh, in, yeah. in Vancouver. Um, someone listed for $750 a month. It was, it's like a 10 by 8 windowless room in a house for 750 bucks a month. It's essentially like a walk-in closet. And that's like the going rate. And it's like, okay, we saw headlines, people complaining and being like, oh yeah, but what if we end up with an oversupply of housing? And it's like, so you mean Canadians wouldn't spend 30, 40, 50% of their disposable income on housing and all the homeless people would have places to stay. I mean, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, saw, actually, big sounds article, really good. <laughs> sounds like, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I saw one article this week about a house in York uh, that was at $2.1 million, uh, And then the final uh, price was something like 450000 over asking. Oh, boy. Uh, because of the bidding. And I looked at the house. It was, it's, uh, it's three bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be like three bedrooms. That's nothing. Like 2,000 square feet. <laughs> my parents' house, not not to go back to that, my parents' house, you know, we had whatever, four or five bedrooms, and uh, it, it ain't no two point, uh, you know, $6 million, I'll tell you that right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> and I've seen your parents' house. It's gorgeous. Oh. It's, a, it's a beautiful house, but it would probably be like, this is how insane the Canadian housing market, it would be like the down payment on that house in York region. <laughs> It's just yeah. wild. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a, there's, I mean, you know, prices have gone up. I mean, I've seen, a, there's actually some really great real estate tracking apps, which I think, you know, we talk a lot about government policy. I'm sure this has added a little bit to the price of, of houses overall. <laughs> you know, having a totally open, open searching mechanism. Um, there's a house that I just happen to put on there that's down the street from my parents. It's nothing special. It's two bedrooms. That thing has shot up $150,000 in value in a year. They didn't do anything to it. <laughs> oh, all right. We could talk about the housing in that, and uh, uh, hopefully you're, you're thinking about my proposition of uh, getting your place out uh, in the sticks, in the boonies, and uh, just renting uh, more, and yeah, that's pretty much our thing. So I want to talk about one thing. Uh, obviously, we had a big Supreme Court thing that has nothing to do with what we're going to discuss, and you guys have probably heard a lot about it. But I wanted to talk about something else. Um, there was uh, Vice, uh, not my go-to um, news outlet. So they actually FOIA'd, they did a Freedom of Information Act on the CDC, and it seems that the uh, Centers for Disease Control, CDC, uh, tracked millions of phones to see if Americans followed COVID lockdown orders. And uh, it was basically bought access to million of, millions of phones data uh, basically seeing who was visiting schools, uh, who was uh, in a particular, uh, let's say, native reservation, uh, when people were coming and going, uh, and essentially tracking that to provide data 
Apparently, the CDC paid around 400000 bucks uh, for this data. Uh, there are a lot of private companies that offer this, that get that data from the phone companies. Uh, I saw one or two articles, again, from Vice, but I didn't see much thinking about it. And this compounds with uh, a similar uh, op-ed that comes from the editorial board of the Washington Post about a federal privacy law, uh, which I've written about before. And they are actually very um, worried about companies like uh, Clearview AI. It's a facial recognition company that they contract with a bunch of different government agencies. And essentially, they are also selling data, uh, but like on David Clement's face, uh, whenever you show up on some CCTV footage, private or whatever, uh, they're saying that we should have uh, some kind of privacy uh, standards in place, making sure that we don't have too many government agencies with that data, which uh, oddly enough, I agree with. Uh, but yeah, a lot of data and privacy, and there's a lot of a lot of really prickly things that are coming out in the in all these stories. Well, and how do you how do you expect people to trust these? measures if they're then abused and like i mean the privacy discussion really has it's kind of fallen to the wayside post like we're nowhere near where we were in the like edward snowden days of of caring about this stuff and it's almost just like the overton window has shifted and, and people have just become more accustomed to some of the craziness um i mean the same way that we're like just now used to the tsa even though much much of it is theater, um, and the data shows that a th- lot of it is theater. I think, um, yeah, I think added to that though, it's also because we have uh, essentially private surveillance. You know, we have all of these apps uh, that we give our data to. We have all these different social media networks. You know, yeah. our phones contain our lives, and I think because people have become accustomed to that, um, when it comes to a government agency, they say, okay, well, you know, that's fine. Not well, really understanding the difference between a government agency and Twitter. Yeah, uh, I mean, you consent to one. Um, you do, you're not given the option to consent to the other. That's that's the kicker for me. I mean, if I if I want to let Google Maps use my data um, to like optimize traffic or sell me ads based on where I go, okay, that's that's different than the government buying that data to to know what I'm doing or what rules I'm following or what rules I'm not following. It's, I mean, it's relatively benign at the moment. Um, relatively benign at the moment, but like, well, imagine that's if the, it, that's I mean, the whole thing. Yeah, but imagine, yeah. I mean, for the people who really freaked out about, like, just whoever you don't like politically, just be like, I want... Insert politician you don't like, Donald Trump. I want Donald Trump to have this information. It's like, well, no, I don't. Like, I don't want the Trump attorney general to know my comings and goings. And just, I mean, whether you're left or right, insert whoever you don't like. And and pretty quickly it becomes a question of, oh, I don't know if I want the government to be able to do that. It's a strange world out there. Yeah, there is a lot of talk around this uh, on the uh the uh, Disinformation Governance Board, uh, this newly established entity by the Biden administration uh, that will be staffed by a millennial uh, who sings poorly on TikTok. Um, and this, <laughs> essentially, we're, we're in this kind of new age. And, I, you know, I, I think if I could put on my great resetter hat for a second, 
you know, if our phones are tracking and, you know, there's lockdowns or we're not supposed to be outside, you know, there could be a thing to where people are penalized. You know, they see that your particular uh, IMEI number, which is on your phone, your unique identifier, uh, and then all of a sudden your Apple wallets things don't work. So then you can't use that or... You know, and then uh, if you have the central bank digital currency, then uh, you know you're <laughs> you're denied from for buying here and there, and uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a whole other world out there that I know uh, I'm a bit concerned about. I know that uh, we as consumer advocates uh, are going to continue to push for at least some good measures to make sure government doesn't get too much access to this. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, Privacy. Well, we got we got to uh, run because we got to we... overall, David. Uh, yeah, we're happy to have you back here, though. Yeah, it's good to be back, and we're ending this episode just in time because apparently there's a window cleaner um, <laughs> doing doing our condo windows right now. So I have some fellow just outside the window cleaning our windows and staring at us. But anyway, until next week. Yes, yeah, support the working class. <laughs> All right, talk to you guys soon. It's a strange world out there.